0: This campus, Uh, what that means is I get to work with the 6th through 12th graders and the college students, um, and it's just a a pleasure to get to do so. We have some fantastic leaders and some amazing students, uh, so really, I get blessed every week to to get to do what I do. Um, And this week, I get the bonus of getting to be here to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, So we are in Mark 12. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up uh, to follow along with us. We're going to be going through in Mark 12. Um, a lot of scripture. We got two sections. There's three groups of people asking two questions, and both of them have the goal of tripping up Jesus, of trapping him in his words. And so, uh, for sake of time, we're going to jump right in. Let me pray, and then we'll open up to Mark 12. Lord Jesus, right now, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here and to share your word. I pray, God, that you would use me, Holy Spirit, speak through me, but open up our eyes to your scriptures, that we might learn more about who you are and how we might look more like you. Help us to see in Mark 12, whatever it is that you want each and every one of us to see this morning. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So let's jump right in. Mark 12, starting in verse 13, says this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him, said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, before we continue into Jesus' response, I want to start by saying, notice how uh, they start by trying to butter up Jesus. You notice know, this? Like, they start with these Pharisees and Herodians, they come and they say, Teacher, we know that you're true and you're good. And and so they come with this false presentation that they really just want Jesus to give them an answer. They want to know, Jesus, you're true, you're good, you're not swayed by people, so tell us. Because we want to learn from you. But that's not their heart's intention. And we know that because it starts off by telling us that they came to trap him in his talk. And what's the trap? The trap is should we? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? So they're asking a legal question. They're expecting Jesus to come with a legal answer, right? To come with uh, some law from Moses and say, yeah, this is why or this is why not. That's what they're expecting Jesus to do. Here's the question, Jesus. But their hope is to trap Jesus because the issue of taxes is a pretty contentious one in this time. And so they ask the question, here's Jesus' response. But knowing their hypocrisy he said to them, "Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it." And they brought it. they brought one. And he said to them, "Whose likeness and inscription is this?" They said to him, "Caesar's." Jesus said to them, "Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's." And they marveled at him. So, as a reminder, We see two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Pharisees are religious leaders. They're very uh, zealous for God's law and following it the best they could. They're the religious leaders of their time. And then the Herodians, we don't really know as much about them, uh, but based on their name, we can assume that they were in support of Herod. Um, And so, uh, therefore, that they have a support for Rome. And so these two groups of people come to Jesus, and uh, from the context, it, it Appears that these aren't necessarily the top dogs of the Pharisees. They're not the big guns. Uh, they're sending some of their disciples with this question. They've probably talked about it and how we're going to, okay, now you guys, you guys go and try to trap Jesus. And so these guys come and they're like, Jesus, we know you're true and good, and all those things, buttering them up. And then they go, and now here's the gotcha. You ready? And they throw this question. And the trap is this Will Jesus support paying taxes to the Romans? who uh, are in this time in history, they are over the Jewish people. They are the oppressors of the Jewish people. Now, uh, compared to somebody like the Babylonians who would assimilate people, you had to become like the Babylonians, learn all their culture, be given new names, all that kind of stuff. The the Romans, they allowed people to have a certain level of freedom to do what they're going to do. But ultimately, you got to know that you're under the emperor. You are under Rome. And so there's certain things that you just can't do. We're gonna see in a couple of chapters that one of those things is capital punishment. You can do some law, but if you want capital punishment, you gotta come to Rome and, and get permission for that. And another one is taxes, that they have to pay taxes to Rome. And so the people, the Jewish people, were not happy with paying taxes to the people who are over them and oppressing them. And so if Jesus says, Yeah, of course you should pay taxes, and I'm all for that, then the people are going to be, start to go against Jesus. So that's option one. They like that option. Option two is that, uh, that he says, no, it's not good to pay taxes Caesar. You shouldn't do that. And then guess what Jesus looks like? He looks like a revolutionary. He looks like a guy who's against Rome. He's against Caesar. And now they can get the authorities to come. In. So either way, this is a win-win. Either Rome and Caesar's against Jesus or the people are against Jesus. Ha-ha, the perfect question. Until Jesus starts to speak, and Jesus says, "Bring me a denarius," which probably threw them off immediately because again, they're asking a legal question. They're expecting Jesus to come with like, "Well, you've heard it said in," and but he starts by saying, "Do you have a denarius on you? Can I see it?" Uh, and a denarius is a small coin. It's Uh, what you'd be paid for, like, a day's labor. If you were to work a day out in the fields, like, you'd get paid a denarius, and you might use these coins to pay your taxes. And so Jesus is asking for the coin, and he says, whose image is this? So here's a picture, an example of a denarius from this time. And the inscription on it says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. I want to pause for just a little side note, because I find this interesting. Um, Notice the inscription, uh, the the. Roman people kind of ascribed a deity status to Caesar Augustus, and so Tiberius is claiming this son of the god Caesar. Uh, Isn't it ironic that the son of God is holding this coin that says, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. (laughs) Okay, just me? I find find that interesting. We'll move on. Um, But Jesus, who is the son of God, says, let me see it. And then he asks a question, a simple one. Uh, Whose image is it? Whose inscription? And they give the right answer, Caesar. And then Jesus gives a really profound answer to their question. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, like many of Jesus' responses and teachings, he gives a very plain answer, but it's also an answer that calls us to dig deeper because we should immediately ask two questions when we read this. Can you, think of, can, you, can you figure it out? Okay, well then, what are the things that are Caesar's and what are the things that are God's? If I'm supposed to give something to Caesar and something to God, what are those things? And Jesus wants, he's inviting us, calling us to look into Scripture, to do the math ourselves. What the Scripture speaks on this, what does it say? So let's dive into Genesis 1. The very first verse in the Bible tells us that, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you create something, you are the owner of that thing. If right now I had like this idea, like an invention in my mind, and I were to like create that thing, and I go and I put a patent in and say, this was my idea. It is my thing. You have no right to tell me how to use my invention. It's mine. Because I created it. God is the creator of everything, the heavens and the earth. And if you want to see the detail of that, keep reading through the rest of Genesis chapter 1, right? Day after day, how, Jesus, how God creates. God is the creator of all things, which means that he is the owner of all things. Everything in heaven and on earth is ours. And Jesus is particularly pointing them to this passage, but also specifically, I think, on purpose, why he starts with the coin is he wants to get them thinking about image-bearing, and he points us to what would be a couple verses later in, in verse 26 and 27. I'm just going to read 27 for you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created all things, including you, which means that he is The authority over us. He has rightful authority over all things, including us. And, man, I wish we had time to dive into what it means to be in the image of God. I'd really encourage you, spend some time diving into what it means to be made in the image of God. But Jesus is pointing to the fact that we stand out as unique among creation, that there's all of creation, but also we, like nothing else in all creation, have this image of God that we bear. Just like when you pull out a coin and you go, who's on this coin? You know who's on the coin. When we look at people, there is an image that we bear that when you look at any animal or any plant or any other thing, you might see the fingerprints of God on those things, but you do not see the very image of God that we bear. God has created in us this multitude of his image that spreads across the world that we get to bear and show one another, this image. So it's an, it's an important thing, and we should ask that question, what does it mean? And I hope that you will, and I hope that you'll dive deeper into that, because it's really good. But Jesus is pointing to these things because he wants us to consider, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And so what is God's? Everything. Everything is his. So that means that anything that I have and anything that I am, that I am Mainly, I'm but a steward of those things. Every breath that I have is given to me by the Lord, and so I should use it to glorify him. Every dollar that I earn, every relationship that I build, every moment that I have on earth, it is his. And so the question is, do we live in such a way where we are giving to God the things that are God's? Do I we do this uh, often. Kenny does this at the end of a service, right? Those of you who come here regularly, uh, can you remember what Kenny says? It's like, hold out our hands because I want God to give whatever he would give and I'm willing, to, I'm willing to give whatever he calls me to give, right? Do we live that way with open hands that, God, you can have it all? That if today God said, sell everything and give to the poor, would I be willing to do that? It's his. So would I say yes or would I... No, 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 okay, you can have most things, God, but not that. Do we live like this? And so that's the question. Jesus is saying, give to God what is God's, it's all his. Which then leads to the question, okay, then, is Jesus saying, when he says give to Caesar what is Caesar's, that means nothing is Caesar's, right? If all things are God's, that means nothing is Caesar's, right? So we don't have to pay taxes. Woo! (laughs) Guys, I tried really hard really hard to find a way for us to not pay taxes. But it's not there, all right? Because we should also know the scriptures. Romans 13, uh, and and I would encourage you to continue to read past verse 2 because it continues to dive deeper into this topic. But for sake of time, verses 1 and 2 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In the same way that God has gifted to me breath and time and finances and all those things to use, God has also instituted and allowed for governments to have authority and to rule over peoples. And so we, uh, governing authorities, will be held accountable to the ultimate judge, which is God. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is over all, and they will be held accountable. We are held accountable to how we honor the Lord in following the authorities. That includes also, as an example, other authorities, like our parents. If if you're a kid in this room, you have an authority directly over you called mom and dad, and you are called to honor your father and mother in how you live. That's an authority that God has put over you. Now... In both examples, mom and dad, or the government as our president, or this emperor, that in every one of these examples, they are authority that has been given authority by the ultimate authority, which is God. Which means, if they ever call you to do something that is sin, to go against the Lord, you follow your ultimate authority. You follow God. And if you want some really good examples of this, go to the book of Daniel. Uh, I believe it's chapter 4, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fiery furnace and and how they stand up against uh, what uh, the government is saying they should do that is not following the Lord. Or a couple chapters later when there's Daniel and the lion's den, both are really great examples. I'd encourage you to read those passages to see how it works itself out that when the government says, hey, do something against the Lord, we go, I'm sorry, but I can't follow you. I want to, but I can't because I have to follow the Lord first. But As far as it is by us, whenever the governing authorities is calling us to something that does not go against the word of God, we are called by God to follow that authority, including paying taxes. So, bummer. Um, So, what are the things that are Caesar's? And Jesus is making a really cool point with such a short, just a one-line thing, and, and all these points are wrapped up in it that Caesar's authority and the things that are Caesar's are so minute. Give to Caesar, what is Caesar's? You might not enjoy giving taxes, but in the end, let him have the taxes. Our focus should be on giving to God the things that are God's, living for him. And so, as we kind of finish out this first section, uh, Jesus' response should lead us to ask a lot of questions of ourselves. Are we living out the image that we bear in a way that honors him? Are we giving to God the things that are God's? And are we honoring the Lord in the way that we interact with the governing authorities and other authorities in our lives? Um, Because God has called us to these things, and so maybe a a check thing that we can do uh, today, even to look at ourselves and ask the hard question of, yeah, have I, do I live with open hands, and how do I respond to the government? but we're going to keep going because uh, we now see our third group of people and the second question that's brought to Jesus, okay? Verse 18 in Mark 12 says, And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, pause for a second. Um, A lot of us probably read that and go, Wait, what? Um, You're going to hear this a lot from me. I don't have time to dive into the depths of what this passage is talking about, but I will say this there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament specifically that were for a season and a time in history. God cares about the widow. God cares about the poor. He cares about the disenfranchised. And in this scenario, think about the world that the widow is living in. When her husband dies with no uh, no kids, she is in a very difficult position. She has no way to get income. She is is going to be a poor widow who's going to need help from the community in order to survive. In God institutes this law to say, if there is a brother who is unmarried, he should marry that widow that gives her support, that gives its care for the family. And then, if they have a son, that son will be the descendant of not the brother who married, but the brother who died. He gets to carry on the, the, which is really important, the family line, including the inheritance that that brother would have had. So it's a really important thing for the family line and for the woman. and for So it's an important thing. I wish I could go deeper. If you want to go deeper, read the book of Ruth. Kinsman redeemer, we see Boaz as an image of Christ, our ultimate uh, kinsman redeemer. And it's a really beautiful picture. And that's an example of this law playing itself out in scripture. And so if you want to know more, check that out. Um, I digress, we keep going. So they bring this law up. They say, Jesus, you remember that law, right? In the book of Moses, you remember that? Um, Okay, we have a story for you, Jesus. Here it is. Verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died and had no offspring, and then the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Okay, wow, that is a sad story. Um, just death, 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 and then at the end, then the woman died too. Okay, great. So, um, so they give this whole story, and they say... Um, In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. Four, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I love that Jesus ends with, you are quite wrong. Like, if you missed it, you're wrong. Um, But he walks through them through. So we see in here, again, recap, the Sadducees are the group of people. They are a religious sect, but they're a smaller religious group. And what defines them is the fact that they do not believe in the resurrection. They don't think that the bodily resurrection uh, from the dead is going to happen. And so they bring this question, again, not genuinely wanting to hear an answer from Jesus, but thinking that they have a trap. They say, whose wife will this woman be? She was married to seven different guys, and now in heaven, whose wife is she? thinking that either they're going to stump Jesus and he's going to be like, oh man, an impossible question. You got me. Or two, that maybe they'll get lucky and Jesus will be like on their side and like agree with them and go, you know what? You're right. The resurrection, not a real thing. And that's a great passage to point to. But Jesus doesn't give that answer. Um, Before I give Jesus answer, I want to point out something. Jesus has a very clear answer and response to the question that he's being asked. But within his answer, there's something said that probably all of you picked up on immediately, and that's the question you want me to answer, and I'll get to that. Um, So first, though, the answer to the Sadducees about the resurrection, because they're trying to put a trap before Jesus to prove the resurrection is not a thing. And Jesus starts by saying, For when they rise... He's just, it's not even fluffy. He's not even like, oh, I hear what you're saying. He's just like, okay, when they rise, because that's gonna happen, um, and then he ends with a proof text. He says, don't you remember the story? Don't you remember the passage? The burning bush, and God speaks from the bush, and what does he say? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God of the living, not the dead. You know what's true about all three of the guys he just named at that point in history? They all died. And yet, what does Jesus say about them? That they are living. The resurrection is something that we can hold tight to, we can be sure of. And this is something that should give us such peace and joy, is that if you have a loved one who knows Christ, loves Christ, is in Christ, and has passed away, they are not dead, they are the living, because the resurrection in Christ is a real thing, and it is coming, and there's an eternity that we get to experience life in, real, true, full life, and that comes through Christ, and so Jesus says that our God is a God of the living, not the dead. The resurrection is true. You are very wrong (laughs) in what you believe, and man, was that the most loving thing Jesus could have said instead of trying to give them fluffy words back, Jesus gives them a very straight and honest answer that you are so off on the resurrection. You need to correct your thinking. And so for us, who may struggle with the idea about the resurrection being a real thing, Jesus is challenging you. He's telling you, believe in me and believe in what I say that the resurrection is coming and is real and eternity matters. So, let's move into the part in the middle that most of us got caught up on. Jesus, in explaining that there is a resurrection, he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And I think it led most of us to start asking some questions, like, wait, wait a minute, there's no marriage in heaven? Uh, Will my spouse, if there's no marriage in heaven, then will my spouse even know me or be connected to me in any way? Or maybe your thought was something more along the lines of how could heaven be better if I lose my spouse? Or finally, maybe you're sitting here and you're not married and you're going, well, then what's the point? Should I even get married then? Like, why would, why would I even get married? And so I don't have time to dive as deeply as I would like to into this, but I do want to spend time on this because it is worth it. Let it be known a couple things. One, um, this answer is kind of multifaceted, so stay with me. Um, The first thing I want to say is this. Jesus is very clearly saying, no, you will not be married to your spouse in heaven. That is what it says, and that's what he means. You will not be married to your spouse. If you're married, I'm married. If you're married, you will not be married to your spouse in heaven. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute. If that makes you sad at first, that's okay. Okay? I, as a married person who loves my wife, didn't really like that answer right away. However, God is so clear that it is good, that heaven is good, that he is good, and that it is worth it. So if I believe that truth, that God is good, and I'm struggling with something here about this marriage question, God is inviting us to dig in deeper, to understand how it works. And so that's what I want to do. Ready? First, we need to understand what marriage is all about. What's the purpose of marriage? Um, I have done entire like sermons on this, so we don't have time to dive all the way in. But let me say this. The purpose of marriage, I see four main purposes. First, procreation. That God has created marriage to be one man, one woman, together for life, and that within that covenant of marriage that that's where children are supposed to come i know that kids come in other situations and that god is good and he has grace and he can work in any situation but god has designed it to be one man one woman together for life and children come there that's where procreation comes in and so that's one of the purposes of marriage god's also designed marriage to have a purpose of sanctification now sanctification comes in a lot of different ways and that means becoming more like jesus so we become more like Jesus through every different relationship and opportunity that we have in, in our life. But marriage specifically, this is a person who is in your life every day. They get to know you in a way that nobody else knows you. Um, without my wife ever saying a word, I see more of my selfishness and more of my faults because I know what the call of a husband is, and I see when I fall short. I see the way that Christ calls me to live, and I see how I fail with my wife from t- from. Well, all the time. And so she doesn't have to tell me that. I am sanctified just by being in a relationship where I get an opportunity to see those things. And then on top of that, I have a wife who loves the Lord and points me to Scripture and points me to the things where she notices that maybe an area that I'm struggling, maybe a blind spot, and helps me to see the ways that I can grow to become more like Christ. So marriage is a beautiful place to grow in sanctification. Third, illustration, Ephesians 5. Paul says there's this great mystery... That ultimately our marriages are more than just for us. In fact, they point to something greater. Just like the temple is a picture that points us to something greater, just like the sacrificial system in the Old Testament points to something greater, marriage points to something greater than ourselves. It is this relationship between Christ and the church, that there is this relationship and this love between Christ and the church that is something beautiful that our marriages get a chance to point people to. We get to share the gospel if we love our spouse well. We point people to the love that Christ has for the church, and that's a beautiful thing. And then, companionship, that we get this beautiful gift of somebody to walk alongside with through life, the highs and the lows, and that is a beautiful gift from God. And that's So those are the purposes of marriage. So let me say this. If that's the purpose that, mar- that God has designed for marriage, uh, think about how that is a beautiful thing here on earth. Now think about in heaven. We're not going to be having more kids. We don't need to be sanctified. We are going to be fully sanctified into the presence of the Lord. We don't need to be an illustration for those around us of Christ in the church because we are going to be living it and then companionship, we don't need in the same way because we will be fully, as the body, we will be fully connected in a way that without sin, it's going to be a thing, a beauty that we don't need the same thing. Okay, so God is, has this purpose for marriage, and it's beautiful, that will be fulfilled in such a way in heaven that, that marriage, in the way that we think of it now, isn't needed One other thing that God honoring marriage gives us, it's not just that we get to be an illustration for those around us, but it for us gets to be a picture of a glimpse. I like to say glimpse because this is a tiny, imperfect picture of what our ultimate reality is. That image of Christ in the church, I have in Amy, many of you have in your spouse, a person who knows you as fully as a person can know you, and yet they still love you. Isn't that crazy? Amy knows me well enough to have a laundry list of reasons to not love me. But she chooses to love me. That is an unconditional love that reflects the Father, that reflects Jesus. And it is a beautiful thing and is a daily reminder of what I am looking forward to. That in the future, I get to have this intimate relationship with Christ in heaven. And that is the part that I want to focus on. See, like I said a minute ago, it's okay if this makes you sad because our first and our initial response is going to come from our current perspective. When I hear that there's no marriage in heaven, my first thought is, that means if there's no marriage, that means I'm losing my marriage. And if we stay there, then we'll just get mad at God. But that's not what he's saying. He says that there's no marriage in heaven. He's not saying that you lose your husband or your wife we are going to have a perspective shift. We're going to have a change of relationship. No longer will Amy be my wife. Instead, her and I, we get to be the bride of Christ together. We need a perspective shift because there is a marriage in heaven. We are called the bride of Christ. Do you know that, church? We are his bride, which means that we get to be in a intimate, loving, perfect relationship with Christ forever. So every relationship that I have, it's not just marriage, we're focusing on marriage right now, but every relationship I have is going to have a shift when it goes to eternity. The relationship I have with my parents will be different. The relationship I have with my siblings will be different. The relationship I have with people who I've discipled will be different. The people, everyone who's in heaven, my relationship is going to shift because all of us are going to have a focus and an eye on Christ in a way that's different. We're going to have sin removed from from the equation. Which means this. Even though I won't have my wife as my spouse, I believe that our relationship will be better. Because no longer do I have sin getting in the way of my best attempts at loving her and my best attempts at, at leading her like Christ. Instead, we both, hand in hand, get to love Jesus with our eyes fixed on him. No sin anymore. We get to love one another in the, all of the best and proper ways that we can for eternity. It's going to be better. Have you ever talked to an engaged couple? Like a brand new engaged couple? Anybody ever like... Like, know somebody who's... Okay, so maybe you haven't, but here's two uh, newly engaged couples that are a part of our community. You may or may not know them. Nehemiah and Nicole, and then Corey and Megan. Um, and if you were to talk to either of these couples or any newly engaged couple, and you were to ask them the question, what are you most excited about? You know what they don't say? I can't wait for joint bank accounts. It's going to be great. I can't wait to do his laundry. Like, these are the things that I am excited about, right? Um, Or her laundry. Um, So the reality is this. There's a lot of things to be excited about with marriage. There's a lot of things to be excited about with your wedding day. The cake's going to be great. It's going to be fun. And we're going to do all these things. It's going to be awesome. But you know what they say when you ask a newly engaged couple, what are you most excited about? They say about being with that person for a lifetime. I can't wait to be with them. Here's the crazy thing about that statement. They're already together. They're dating, they're already connected. So why would the thing that they're most excited about be to be together? Because an engaged couple understands that there's something unique about that relationship, being married and having that full, intimate connection of marriage. And it's a beautiful thing and it's a worthwhile thing. And church, we should have those kinds of eyes for Christ. When I think about eternity, there's a lot of things to love about heaven. There's a lot of things and a lot of people who will be there and a lot of it's going to be great. But my focus is not on I can't wait to walk on streets of gold. I can't wait to whatever it is. It's about being with him. I can't wait to be with Christ, to be intimately and forever connected with Christ, to have a relationship with him for eternity. Like that's it. I get to be with him. Can we truly say, uh, Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? Is that our heartbeat? It doesn't matter if there's anything else, if there's no one else, if it's just you, Jesus. That's everything. That's all I want, that's all I need, it's you. Think about the parable that Jesus says in Mark thirteen, where you got, sorry, Matthew 13, I believe, where you got the parable of the treasure in the field, where the man sells everything everything that he owns so that he can buy this field. And everyone is like, what? Why would you sell it all for this field? Because the treasure is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He's worth everything. If you lose everything, if you have nothing else, it's him. Can we say that, church? Because if we can, if we believe that, then we should be able to look at eternity and go, man, God, it is good because I get you. But we're not only promised, I'm it's going to sound bad. Just Jesus. It's, we it's not just Jesus. It is all the other things too. My spouse gets to come with me. If she also is a follower of Christ who loves the Lord, she's with me in eternity and I get to have a relationship with her for eternity. And all of you, any of us who are in Christ, we get to have community without sin together for eternity, worshiping the Lord. It is all beautiful, but it is nothing compared to Jesus. He is worth it. And to show you this with two scriptures before we end. John 14 Jesus says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We might not catch this immediately, but the the people Jesus is speaking to do. This is marriage language. Jesus is giving them marriage language, and he is saying, we are betrothed, and I have gone away, I am going away to prepare a place so that I can come to bring you to be with me. Right now, church, that's where we are. You are betrothed to Christ. If you are in him, you are his, but the day is coming where he is going to come back for us, that we might be with him for eternity. And if you look in scripture, what's the job of the bride what is she doing in this season? Her job is to ready herself, to be ready, and to keep her eye on the horizon because the day is going to come when the bridegroom comes and it is announced that he is here. And when that day comes, there will be a celebration and a ceremony and a feast because we will be married That's what the bride does. She waits in anticipation, knowing the day is coming. I don't know when, but soon. He's going to come at any moment. As soon as he is done preparing the place, he's going to come back for me. And I can't wait. I'm ready. I'm prepared. My eyes are fixed. And when he shows up, I am ready for him. And we're going to be together for eternity. And that's, church, what we should be excited about. You want to see that day? Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters like a sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the lord our god almighty reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready are you ready are you ready church are we because This is the thing that we should be excited about. This is what should drive everything that we do. The first section of scripture that we looked at, the being made in the image of God and how we live on a daily basis. Do we live with eternity in mind, knowing that Christ is coming, that I am his and that I get to be with him? Are we looking for that? Are we excited for that? Is it what drives our very lives here on earth? That's the call of us as the church. And it is so easy, guilty, it's so easy to get distracted by the things of this earth. To have my eyes drawn away from Christ. Man, we need this reminder, don't we? I love this reminder that the marriage of the Lamb and we are his bride is coming. So, I want to end with this. Just a reminder. How do we apply this to our lives? I think two things. One, We have to ask ourselves this question of, am I living in such a way that honors both the image that I am created in and giving to God all that is his? And then second, am I also living in such a way that has eternity in mind? Eyes fixed on Christ, knowing that he is the prize and living for him now. As we transition now, the worship team is going to come out. We're going to move into a time of communion. And I think this is such a beautiful transition point because it is because of the cross and what Jesus did on there that we have an opportunity of a relationship with him. Jesus died on the cross so that I don't have to pay for my sin because he paid it for me. And if I confess and believe in him, then I get to spend an eternity with him as his bride. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so right now, we are gonna spend time remembering what Jesus did on the cross for us, with bread and a cup, remembering his body broken and his blood poured out for us. Here at Friendship, uh, we do open communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, then please join us in communion. We have four tables, one on each corner, and just during this song, go down the aisle, grab the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seat with you. Uh, Pastor Matt Hamble will be coming up um, after the song to lead us in taking communion together.